Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. I'm Michelle Wu, and I'm a Covenant community member here at The Well, and my husband and I shepherd the Cedar Park Lakeline CG. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And today I'll be reading Mark 9, 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. How's it going, everyone? Welcome, welcome. What is up? Happy post-Thanksgiving, everybody. Hope you enjoyed some good food, good time with family. And I actually also want to welcome some of the families that are joining us as visitors today. Um, I hope you also enjoyed time with family. We're glad that you are um, joining us this morning. And as glad as we are that you're here, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, as happy as we are, you may not be very happy that you're here after hearing the very intense scripture we're covering today. Um, But let me assure you, nothing brings a family together quite like passages on demon possession, right? (laughs) I hope you have high expectations for today's sermon. Uh, In all seriousness, though, uh, I want to welcome you all this morning, but I also want to welcome people that call the well home. As Joel said, this is our second time meeting here in Eastside after about two and a half years of being somewhat nomads as a church family. Ever since COVID, we've either been virtual um, or we've been meeting in another church's space in the afternoon. So we're finally back to the mornings. We're in our own space. Uh, on the east side of Austin, which is where we originally planted. And so it's definitely a new chapter for the well, one that we're all excited about. 
And so with that, if you do call the well home, I want to be the second to say welcome home, right? Um, okay, so we are picking back up in our uniquely series, gospel, uh, gospel uh, uniquely Jesus gospel series, sermon series. And what we're doing is we're looking at the three synoptic gospels and we're looking at stories that are found uniquely in one of the three. Now, the story that we read today is actually pretty unique. It's, it's found in Matthew and Luke, um, but Mark's version is a lot longer. He actually spends um, more time on this story in the scriptures than both Matthew and Luke combined. And the one thing Mark does that the other writers don't do is Mark not only touches on Jesus's interaction with the disciples, but he zooms in to Jesus's interaction with the boy and his father. And he includes details of that conversation that aren't found anywhere else. And so knowing why Mark does this, why, why he not only touches on the disciples, but also engages with the father and his boy on a personal level is crucial to understanding the rest of this message. Here's why I think Mark is doing this. He wants to highlight belief from two different perspectives. A, a corporate perspective, he wants to talk to Christians collectively but then an individual perspective. Mark wants us to know why it's important to have our eyes fixed on Jesus collectively, but then also from an individual perspective, he wants us to, to be able to, to, to ask ourselves the questions, what do we believe about Jesus personally when we are in the midst of spiritual affliction? And so those are the three things that we're going to cover. We're gonna talk about why it's important to believe in Christ corporately, and what, what we should believe about him in the midst of spiritual affliction individually, and then how we maintain belief in him um, moving forward collectively and um, individually, okay? So listen, if you've heard a sermon from me before, you know that I'm kind of linear, right? Like I used to, I, I really like to just have one thing to talk about and then do like an A plus B equals C with that one thing. This sermon is not gonna be as linear as the other ones, Okay. Uh, it's going to feel like I'm all over the place because we are talking from two different perspectives. And so I, I know it may be a little difficult to track with me, but bear with me. And I promise that by the end, it'll all come together. Okay, hopefully, anyways. Uh, and if it doesn't make sense, I'll just blame Tori somehow. I'll find a way to make it his fault. Um, but okay, before we dive into our passage today, a little bit of context. Um, up until this point, um, Jesus has taken three of his disciples up to a mountain and he's transfigured before them. He begins to shine. He allows his uh, divine glory to shine. And as this happens, the heavens open up and God the Father speaks to all four of them and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And on their way back down the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I know y'all thought that was awesome. Here's the thing, you can't tell anyone until after I've been raised from the dead. And they don't understand what he's talking about. And so when they get back down the mountain, they meet up with the other nine disciples. They see a, a large crowd gathered. And at the center of all of this commotion, they see the disciples arguing with the scribes. And so Jesus steps in and he asks the scribes, hey, what are you arguing with my disciples about? And though Jesus asks the question to the scribes, in the middle of their argument with the disciples, neither scribes or the disciples speak up. Rather, it's someone from the crowd, and we start to get a feel for just how serious this situation is. So we pick up in verse 17, and here's what we read. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a mute spirit, or he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, 
it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they weren't able to. As a father to a one-year-old daughter, let me be the first to tell you that if we're really going to immerse ourselves in this story, I have to say, we would have to understand that as a father, this would be a living nightmare to experience. Because there are few things in life as painful as seeing your child, a child that you love, tormented firsthand, and yet being powerless to do anything about it, right? Why is that? Because as a parent, to love your child is to do whatever, anything in your power, everything in your power to protect them. Many in this room would agree with that. I know my mom would. While I was in elementary school, um, we bought a house that was pretty close to a bayou, so it wasn't necessarily out of the blue to see insects or creatures that we had never seen before. But I remember coming uh, home one day from school, walking through the garage, and as I was walking through the garage, I heard a rattle and a hiss. And I looked to my right, and there it is, a, a rattlesnake tucked up against the garage wall. And as a fifth grader or whatever grader, I think I was in fourth grade, my life flashed before my eyes, of course, right? My life flashed before my eyes and I run inside, gassed. I get to my mom and I yell, mom, snake, garage. She looked at me and said, Yusuf, what is the problem? You better calm down. What are you saying? There's a snake, Yusuf. Where is the snake? Mom, it's, it's in the garage, and I kid you not, she takes her wrap, she ties it around her waist, she gets on her slippers, she goes into that garage, comes back two minutes later, doesn't say a word. She goes right back to what she was doing. And I get to the garage, and there it is, I see the snake beheaded, right? Beheaded. My mom beheaded the snake in like two minutes. I was blown away, y'all. I was like, who is this woman? That, that shows no fear in the face of death. I was like, yo, my mom is a Nigerian superhero. <laughs> and I was expecting her to come in and say something super dramatic like, Yusuf, it is finished. I have beheaded the snake. I was dumbfounded. But now as a father, I get it. I get it. It's not just that my mom is a fearless individual, which she is, but it's the fact that my mom has four kids that love to play outside. Right? And the thought of losing one to, the, to a venomous snake led her to, to act and to act swiftly. So I know in America, you get bit by a snake. It's not the end of the world, probably. But in Nigeria, where my mom's from, you get bit by a snake and you're probably, you're probably going to die. Medicine is not as advanced where she comes from. And so she sprung into action to protect her children. And there's actually nothing extraordinary about that. It's very normal for a parent that loves their child to do anything to protect them. And likewise, there are few things in this world, in this planet as painful as seeing a child that you love suffer and being powerless to do anything about it. And that's what the father is experiencing. To say that this father is in deep distress is an understatement. And then Matthew tells us in his version of the story, this is actually his only son. And so here he is, seeing his only son physically tormented, but not by anything of flesh and blood. This isn't a snake that he can just take a shovel to. It isn't a bully in his son's class. It isn't an angry neighbor. His son is being tormented by a demon. 
an evil spiritual being, the manifestation of spiritual evil, a spiritual snake that a physical snake can't behead. And now listen, this is not going to be a sermon on demonology, but I do want to say Satan is real. Demons are real. And we know their agenda is to to steal, kill, and destroy. And their greatest tactic is to remain in the shadows by convincing people they don't exist. And they are having a field day in the West because that tactic works better here than anywhere else in the world. You go East and the people there are very aware of the spiritual realm and of demonic influences. Here, because we've idolized science and naturalism to Satan's delight, he has his way with many of the lives in our Western world all while going unnoticed. And so, so though demons do exist, you have one crowd in the West that underemphasizes their existence. On the other hand, you have a crowd that over-obsesses at their existence, right? Where they blame demons for everything, right? I think my girlfriend has a mute demon. <laughs> nah, bro. No, that's called the silent treatment, all right? She don't have a demon. <laughs> Figure out what you did wrong and make it right, right? Get her some flowers. It ain't no demon, but these tend to be the extremes that, that need to be avoided. Either it's everything's a demon's fault or demons don't exist. So Tori's doing a series on spiritual warfare in January, January and I'm sure he'll touch on this, but we're going to get back to the story. But those, those extremes are to be avoided. Demons are very real, y'all. And you see this father, he's helpless. There's nothing he can physically do. And so in his desperation, he turns to a spiritual solution. He's heard of a man with great authority, spiritually. He's heard of a man that's cast out demons and heals the sick and raises the dead to life. And so as Jesus' fame grows, so does this man's hope that there may be a solution to his dreadful situation. And so he goes on a quest to find Jesus, but he doesn't find Jesus. He finds Jesus' followers, and his followers are unsuccessful. And so where there was once hope in this man, now there's bitter disappointment. We're painting the story, y'all. This is a serious, hopeless, helpless situation. And so when Jesus gets back, the man gives Jesus an update as to what happened. And Jesus responds to his disciples in verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the the child to me. So Jesus, upon hearing the father's take on what's happened, he calls his disciples a faithless generation. That word faithless means without trust in God, okay? So, so why does Jesus tell his disciples that? Because earlier in Mark 6, Jesus actually gave his disciples authority to cast out demons and heal the sick. And they were initially successful. Then Jesus decides to pull away for a few days. And over time, the disciples begin trusting in their own strength and their own authority that has been more than the strength and authority that's been imparted to them and, and now they're unsuccessful, right? And so, so Jesus calls them faithless because they've effectively taken their eyes off of Christ, not realizing that apart from abiding in Christ, they can do nothing to push back the darkness around them. And so here we see corporately why it's especially important that we keep our eyes on Christ. Because as a church, we firmly believe a part of why you exist is to push back darkness, wherever we are, and to expand the kingdom of heaven. And we are going to experience ministry wins as we see God moving. We are, and it's going to be really, really easy to stop trusting in the Lord and to start trusting in our own strength. But if that ever happens, 
if we ever lose strength or, or lose sight of where our strength comes from, we won't push back anything because we're going to be powerless without Christ. And this is human nature, by the way. This doesn't just apply to church. It's human nature that when we, we experience a little bit of momentum, right, we get a little bit ahead of ourselves. We start to think that we're all that, and churches do the same thing. See ministry success, and all of a sudden have to fight that much harder to remain dependent on God. It's kind of like this. A couple weekends ago, I was playing spades with some, some friends of mine. Uh, and I know they're in this room, so I know what they're thinking. They know exactly what I'm about to say. And it was my second time ever playing spades, so I wasn't very good, right? And I'm not going to lie. When they asked me to play spades, I got a little scared because I'm like, listen, I know people that are so obsessed with spades, they will cut you, right, over a game of spades. And so I wanted to make sure that this was a safe place to suck at spades, right? I didn't want to lose my life. Um, and so as I'm playing, my, my partner in the game, Craig, he begins to coach me. He's giving me strategy. Like, hey, man, here's, here's what to think about. Here's, how to, you know, here's, how to, here's what to think about moving forward strategically. And then as a result, I start playing pretty well. I start making some good moves. They're, they're starting to compliment me like, hey, man, good move, Yusuf. Hey, yo, that was, that was kind of smart, Yusuf. And then before I know it, my confidence just grows to an unreasonable level. And I tell my coach, Craig, like, I'm coming for you, boy, right? Right? I'm going to be better than you before you know it. And immediately they all start laughing. And I realize they're not laughing with me. They're laughing at me, right? Like, bro, you just started. Like, chill, right? You're not that good. And it can be the same in ministry. We, we get some coaching from the Holy Spirit. We're tuned into what God is saying. And so our obedience... It means that, okay, man, we start to see some fruit from this. We start to gain some ministry momentum. Our CGs explode. We start to see people come to Christ. We see people baptized, being set free in our purity classes. And before you know it, we're relying on our own strength apart from Christ. God wants to use us as a church to bring healing, freedom to the oppressed. But we can't forget where our power comes from, right? And listen, I'm not saying this judgmentally to other churches, right? Like for, I want us to guard against this. Like East Side Move is ministry momentum. That's a win for our church, y'all. We can't forget where our power comes from though. It's important. Here's another reason why keeping our eyes on Christ is so important as a church. Taking our eyes off of Christ doesn't just affect our effectiveness in ministry, but we can actually end up hurting the very people that God desires to help. Here's what I mean by that. Christ gave the disciples the authority to push back darkness in the lives of those spiritually oppressed. That was the ministry he gave to them. Heal the sick, cast out demons. He did not give them the ministry of winning arguments. And yet when Jesus shows up, what does he find at the center of the crowd? Does he find the disciples ministering to the, the father and the boy? Like, hey man, I know you didn't get the miracle that you want, but God can still be trusted. And, and let us know, man, how can we help you? How can we be of aid to you in this trying time? That's not what he finds. Though this encounter might have started with the need of the spiritually tormented family at the center of discussion, now their pain and suffering is just background noise to perhaps theological arguments of the disciples and the scribes. And so the disciples were given authority to minister to the broken, but now the brokenhearted have, a, have unfortunately taken the backseat. And this frustrates Jesus more than anything. He's not happy. He looks at him and says, man, how much longer do I have to put up with y'all? Over the years, I've come to realize so much church hurt happens because churches take their eyes off of Christ and allow the hurting people that they're meant to minister to to take a back seat. They're no longer a priority. 
And oftentimes it's because churches grow too concerned with their own kingdom as they get to see that ministry momentum, right? We get to see God do big things. And all of a sudden we are now building the wealth kingdom instead of the kingdom of God. We need to guard against this. The more we trust ourselves, the more tempted we are to build our own kingdoms. And if we do that, the more potential there is to actually hurt the people that God wants us to help or to heal. And so what does Christ do here? How does he respond? In verse 19, he shows a little bit of holy frustration, as I mentioned. But then he says, bring the boy to me. He, he puts the spotlight back where it belongs, right? On the boy and his father. And here is where we've seen, okay, corporate belief is, is important. But now Mark starts to transition to individual belief. This is where he starts to transition perspectives as he begins to highlight this interaction between the father and his boy, the father who's completely hopeless, deeply distressed. And so as we move on, we are now going to begin to answer the question, what should we believe about Jesus in the midst of spiritual affliction? Individually, like personally, what should we believe about Jesus? In the next part of the story, Christ calls his son over. And the moment the demon sees Jesus, it throws him into, a, uh, the moment the demon sees Jesus, it throws the son into a convulsion. And we read that in verse 20. They brought to him the boy. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus said to his father, how long has this been happening? And the father said, from childhood. As I was studying this passage, this part actually really got to me. Because you see that this is just an innocent boy. This has been happening since childhood. And yet when, when, when they bring the boy to Jesus, the boy begins to convulse. And not only does Jesus not heal him right away, but he, he asks the question, how long has this been happening? What do you mean, Jesus? Like, what do you mean, how long has this been happening? My son, my, my only son is on the ground convulsing right now. And rather than heal him, you want to have a conversation. It sounds like you want to drag this out. Who cares how long it's been happening? The point is that it's happening and it's happening now and you see it. And yet you haven't healed him. You're asking me a question while he's convulsing. Jesus wants to have a conversation first. I don't know what I would do in a situation like that because the question easily becomes, okay, God, I know you see how serious the situation is. So why aren't you doing anything about it? Like you clearly see what's happening, but I don't see the miracle that I came to you for right away. And so the question becomes like, man, God, do you care? I know you see it. So the only option, the only thing I can, the only reason, the only thing I can fathom is that you just don't care. Notice how Christ doesn't go into a theology of suffering either, though. He doesn't go into a theology of suffering. He doesn't start, he doesn't pull out his textbooks and start giving a lesson on demonology. Christ asks the father a question because he wants to have a conversation where the father can process his pain with him. He wants his father to process his pain with him. Why would Christ do that? I think it's because Jesus is doing heart surgery on this man. He wants to cultivate relationship, intimacy. I think Jesus is doing two healings in this moment, the healing of the boy and the healing of the heart of the father, where all the father can think is my son is convulsing. Jesus, why are you not doing anything? 
Jesus wants the Father's heart. Why? Because God is not transactional, y'all. He's relational. He's relational. And so when we fix our eyes on Christ in the midst of suffering, what do we see? A God that desires our hearts as much as we may desire healing. And though he won't always give us the cookie-cutter explanation as to why things happen, he does offer a, a space for us to process our pain with him. And the more we process our pain with God, the more we allow him to meet us in our pain, the closer we grow to him, the, the more we trust him, even if the miracle is delayed or doesn't come. Um, my first time meeting my grandpa in person was actually as a sophomore in high school, or a sophomore in college, rather. And growing up, we would always talk on the phone, but he finally flew out from Nigeria um, when, I was in, when, when I was in college. And of course, I mean, just so much excitement. It was, it was incredible. Like, it's hard to really describe the feeling of seeing your grandpa, who you've talked to your entire life for the first time as a 19 or 20-year-old. Um, well, within the first few weeks of him being here in the U.S., um, he ends up in the hospital. And it's there that I find out that he's had cancer, um, and the doctors in Nigeria actually gave him a very short time to live. And my parents knew this, but they just couldn't bring themselves to tell us. And so I'll never forget the day that he was hospitalized. I walk into that hospital room. He's lying on the bed. And he's just, I mean, he's smiling. He's happy. He's happy to see me. But I'm not smiling. Because I know my, my grandpa doesn't know Jesus, and I know the implications of that. And so with my entire Muslim family surrounding me, I got on my knees, and I laid my hands on my grandpa. And I prayed out loud. I asked God, God, would you, would you show that Jesus is the only way right now. In Jesus' name, would you actually heal my grandpa and make your name and power known to my Muslim family? My grandpa flew back to Nigeria a few weeks later, and then a few weeks after that, I get a call from my dad that my grandpa had passed away. And it was hard. It was hard. My grandpa was mid-70s, so it's not, I mean, he, he lived a good life. <clears throat> but I thought the, the healing would be the miracle that my family needed to finally be convinced that, man, Jesus is the only way, that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And now the truth is, I don't know what happened in the heart of my grandpa up until the last minute. I don't know. Either way, though, dealing with the loss was difficult. And I wouldn't say that I was angry at God, but I had a lot of questions. I was confused. Luckily, I was surrounded by people, though, that encouraged me to process my pain with the Lord. That he could handle my questions, my raw and honest thoughts. And though I didn't see the miracle that I wanted, I can confidently say I did receive the comfort of Christ in that season. I did. I did. I didn't see the miracle, but I grew closer to the miracle worker himself. He desires that we would ask him, y'all. Y'all remember Persistent Widow from a couple of weeks ago? He desires that we would ask him only that our gaze not be fixed on the miracle, that our gaze would be fixed on Christ himself, the miracle worker, that we would trust him, knowing that he's a safe place to process as we grow in our relationship with him, even if we don't see the miracle that we ask for. What else can we believe about Jesus in the midst of spiritual affliction? Though Jesus is worthy of our perfect faith, he accepts our often fragmented and imperfect faith. He accepts it. The father's processing his pain. 
tells Jesus, listen, man, you don't know how bad this is. This demon's been trying to kill him since he was young. He's been throwing him in the water, tries to cast him in the fire. And so if you can do anything, have compassion, because I'm convinced right now you don't care. If you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And I love Jesus's response in verse 23. If you can. I love that. I love that. I imagine it would be similar response from Michael Jordan if I ever got to meet him and said something like, you know, MJ, if you can dunk a basketball, then please, like, leave us in suspense no longer. Show us. MJ, you know his response. Be like, he wouldn't even, he'd be much more rude, right? He wouldn't have as much patience. Like, sir, you must not know who I am. I am Michael Jordan. And so Jesus doesn't ridicule the man. He follows up by saying all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, don't take that out of context. All things are possible within God's will for the one who believes. What I want to focus on here, though, is the Father's response because it's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Verse 24, I believe help my unbelief. And at that, Christ honors his prayer and heals his son. So what does that tell us? When we're struggling, when we're, when we're oppressed spiritually, we see that though Jesus is worthy of perfect faith, he accepts the heart that says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. The heart that says, God, I trust you, but there are all these areas where I just don't and I need your help. God, I want to fix my eyes on you. Like, I want to see you clearly, but I need help. I need help. As we fix our eyes on Christ individually, do we believe that this is who we see? Someone who desires to be a safe place to process the pain. Someone who accepts our imperfect faith and and is, is open. He wants us to be open and honest about our doubts. I'm willing to bet that not all of you believe this about Jesus. I'm willing to bet that. Right? Some of y'all deeply love the fact that we're constantly saying, push back darkness. You love it. You, you love it. it. It just fires you up. I can, I can tell some of y'all get so hyped about that. Yeah, we're pushing back darkness. Some of y'all I envision with face paint every time I say it because I can feel it in you, right? Yeah, let's go push back darkness. We're kicking Satan's butt. Let's go do it. Yeah. But what about when darkness starts to push back? And you're the one in need of a miracle. Do you believe that Christ is with you? That he wants you to draw near? That he wants you to process your pain and your doubts? And that you can be honest with him about where you do believe and where you don't? Is this who you see? If not, you can ask Christ for help in that area. That's the beauty of this. You can ask him for help to see him more clearly. It's beautiful. And it's relatable. We've all experienced that. Moving on, then Jesus commands the unclean spirit to leave the boy in verse 26. Details what happens next. After the boy cried out, uh, uh, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Uh, Something I want you to notice is the fact that Mark uses three words that are associated with dying all within one verse. Crying out, this is associated with dying. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice. 
convulsing him terribly. That word convulsing is actually the prolonged uh, verb for what it means to like draw your sword. Then you have corpse. And then lastly, in case Mark wasn't clear enough in his suggestion that the boy is dead, he gets the crowd's validation. Like, yeah, he's dead. He's, he's, he's real dead, right? And just when it looks like the enemy is won, Jesus comes in, he steps in. He lifts the boy by the hand and lifts him back to life, brings him back to life. So Mark, why is Mark being so redundant here? You have an innocent boy's death and he's redundant about the fact that he died, but he's also redundant about the fact that he was lifted up. He says he was lifted up and he arose. Mark, that's the same thing, right? Why are you, why are you throwing them both in there? What is he doing? Well, if it isn't obvious at this point, let's give another clue. Mark not only overemphasizes the death of this boy and the resurrection of this boy in this passage, but he sandwiches this story right between two conversations with Jesus and the disciples. Before this, Jesus is coming down from transfiguring before the disciples, and he tells them, don't tell anyone what you saw until the Son of Man raises from the dead. After all of this happens, Jesus then goes on to tell them, the disciples, so he comes down the mountain, raises the boy back to life. Then afterwards, he tells the disciples in verse 31, the son of man is going to be killed. Three days later, he's coming back to life. Y'all see what's happening? Mark is wanting us to know that everything about this story is meant to point to Jesus, y'all. Like everything about this story is meant to point to Christ. Like as incredible as it is, that this boy is healed of a demon and that he comes back to life. Here's the sad truth. That boy dies again and this time for good, right? Like there isn't a New Testament museum where this boy is still alive signing autographs. Step right up, see the demon possessed boy that Jesus healed 2000 years ago. He's dead. And guess who else isn't in that museum? Lazarus. Though God raised him back to life in Christ, he dies again. Everyone that ever experienced a miracle at the hands of Jesus or at the hands of his disciples, they die. The miracles were meant to point to the message because by believing in miracles, you don't inherit eternal life. Miracles don't bring eternal life. But the miracles, they point to the message and the message by receiving the message of the gospel by receiving the message that, man, Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through, through all the forms of darkness in between, sin and death, through him, by believing in him, and by believing in his message, we are given full access to the Father now and forever. And there is no greater miracle than that. There is no greater miracle than that. All of the other miracles are meant to point to the miracle worker, Jesus, that we would believe the miracle worker's message, that he's come to conquer sin and death and give us victory over spiritual affliction, but our own sin and our own death that comes as a result. He wants us to believe, John 11, 20, 25, that by believing in him, though we may die, physically we never die spiritually because he's the resurrection and the life. Friends, in the midst of spiritual affliction, would we believe this about Christ? He's a safe place. He wants us to process. He accepts our imperfect faith, and no matter how bad of a miracle we think we need, he invites us to ask for it, but ultimately he points us to the greater miracle that displays God's overwhelming love for us and his unwillingness to allow darkness to have the final say. He's overcome 
So in light of that, would we fix our eyes on Christ, y'all? Corporately, individually, like when I fix my eyes on Christ, what do I see? I see a some man who experienced grief of all sorts, who, who experienced the loss of loved ones and the lack of resources, someone who experienced homelessness, y'all. When I fix my eyes on Christ, I see the son of man whose friends betrayed him, who, whose enemies beat him, whose father turned his back on him. I've seen Christ. And when I look at his life, I see someone who's experienced every form of hell on earth as he bears the sins of this world so that by by believing in him, we would know and believe there's absolutely nothing I'm going through that he can't relate to. Not only does Christ understand, but he's overcome. And when we fix our eyes on him, we see him walk into that grave and we see him walk out, right? Three days later. And as we follow him, we know we're going in that grave with him, but there's not a demon in hell that can keep us there. Because of the love of Christ, we resurrect with him. We will sure rise with him. Thanks be to God. And so here's how I want to close this sermon. I know y'all thought that was the end. It's not the end. Here's how I want to close the sermon. There's one more question I said I would answer. How do we keep our eyes on Christ? Well, it has to do with the last verse of the passage. In verse 28, 29. It's almost the most anticlimactic ending to the whole thing. The disciples pull Jesus aside and they're like, hey man, why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus is like, oh yeah, that was a tough one. Yeah, that was hard. The only way this one comes out is by asking God to do it through prayer. If I was a disciple hearing that, I would have been upset. None of us thought to pray about this. Like, none of us thought to ask God, like, hey, God, do you mind with all of your glory and all of your authority, all of your power stepping in and healing this boy? None of us thought to do that. Telling you, ministry momentum, y'all. We see some success. Oh, God's given us authority. We're casting out demons. We're, We're now starting to trust in our own authority instead of Christ's authority, and now we're ineffective. And Christ just re-disciples his disciples. Hey, y'all, don't forget to pray next time. Would we be a church that is continually fixing our eyes on Christ through prayer, corporately, individually? Would he be our source to push back darkness? Would we pray for miracles as a church, but always trusting God with the outcomes, knowing that if we've received the message of the gospel, We are recipients of the greatest miracle of all times. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you so much, Lord. Man, I think about the father in the story and the distress that he feels at his son being spiritually tormented. And yet to think that you, Father, you experienced the same thing as Jesus is dying on that cross, being beaten and, and whipped. You experience your son being tormented at the hands of evil. And rather than ask for a miracle, Father, you let it happen. You let your son experience death in the worst way possible at the time. 
Why would you do that? Because you love us. You love us. And because of that moment, we have a hope like no other hope. It doesn't matter what is happening in this lifetime. It doesn't matter what spiritual oppression we encounter. Christ not only understands, but he's overcome. And we overcome too. And the beauty of it is Christ comes down from that mountain transfigured. He leaves his glory to come down and deal with the chaos of the the world beneath. And yet in him, in believing his message, we go up that mountain. Like he, he traded places. Those of us who are, who are spiritually oppressed and often spiritual oppressors to others, spiritual oppressors to God, those of us that don't deserve an ounce of God's favor, we are now called sons and daughters of God if we believe in Jesus. And the same glory that Jesus had on that mountain, we get to experience too because of Christ. Thank you, Father. Jesus, Holy Spirit, for your love for us. I pray that all of us would continually fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.